From the moment we're born and lock eyes with our parents, we are inspiring others. By showing up as a vessel of service, we not only help others, we help ourselves. Welcome to SOS Stories of Service, hosted by Teresa Carpenter, hear from ordinary people from all walks of life who have transformed their communities by performing extraordinary work. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the 67th episode of Stories of Service, Ordinary People Who Do Extraordinary Work. And I am the host of Stories of Service, Teresa Carpenter. And today, as we always do, I have a very amazing and special guest. Uh, her name is Jocelyn Stewart. Hello, Jocelyn. How are you doing? I'm great, Teresa. How are you? I'm doing good. Uh, this is a uh, very hard issue uh, to talk about, but what we're going to talk about today, uh, Jocelyn is a uh, UCMJ, uh, specializes in military uh, law, and what we're going to be discussing today is about false accusations uh, when it comes to sexual assault, rape, uh, sexual crimes in general. And so I wanted to just say that up front because uh, sometimes these issues are very sensitive for some people, and I want to make sure that if this is a conversation that you're just not ready to listen to, that you have the opportunity, uh, I hope you won't, but that you have the opportunity, if need to, uh, to tune out. But I would rather that you tune in because I do believe this is an incredibly important issue. And as I was telling Jocelyn before the show, um, one of the ways that you weed out the cases that are legitimate is that you understand more about what goes on behind cases that are sometimes not legitimate. And I believe this does happen to people and understanding the laws and the policies that govern military justice is the best way to understand how to protect yourself should this happen to you, or even on the other side, what to do if uh, something like this does happen to you uh, while you're serving in the military. So um, as I said, J uh, Jocelyn specializes in the area of military law, and she's now using her hard-earned expertise to educate the masses on social media. She has gotten over 40,000 followers as the military messy lawyer on TikTok. And her videos are an important educational tool teaching so many about a criminal justice system that so few understand. As a former JAG for the US Army, Jocelyn prosecuted and defended soldiers on active duty from 2004 to 2012. Since 2012, uh, she has been providing superior representation exclusively to service members in need of all across all military branches, branches and worldwide. She is determined to provide the best legal counsel possible using unimpeachable tactics to protect each client's career, reputation, and freedom. Welcome. Thank you, Teresa. So first off, um, because you did serve in the Army, um, I want to first just get a little bit of your background about uh, where you grew up and uh, why you decided to serve your country. Sure. So um, the idea first occurred to me when a young woman from my hometown came to my school and did a presentation on her service at the United States Military Academy at West Point. Um, my peers kind of thought I was a little loopy, but that day I said, that that's me like that. That's where I'm going to go. It just felt so I felt so drawn to it because it was going to be able to combine what I saw as all of my passions and what continue to be my passions, self-discipline, um, discipline in athletics and, you know, being a fit person, but also, you know, fitness of the mind and, and just those challenges and those rigors. So that was where I, that idea was first born. I was 15 years mm -hmm. old. Um, I always knew I wanted to go into law um, since I was five, actually. Um, oh, wow. 
are winning disputes on the playground, you know, at a very early age and just having being drawn definitely to a sense of justice. So um, it felt right. It felt like service would be um, my calling and mm-hmm. it definitely has been. Wow. So you knew when you were five years old that you wanted to be a lawyer. That That's so interesting. Did you have anybody in your past that was kind of helping to nurture you on that path? Honestly, no. I mean, you know, I w- when I was five, I said I wanted to be a judge and I had a conversation with my dad and he said, well, you do understand you have to be a lawyer first. No, I don't. What are you talking about? He said, well, how do you think, how do you think you, you become a lawyer or become a judge? Well, you go to judge school. Obviously there's just a judge school um, <laughs> with some evidence that he gave me. I became convinced I needed <laughs> an attorney first. Just like, okay, fine. I'll, I'll do that first. But um, I, I didn't have anybody in my family who was an attorney. Um, honestly, later in life, my dad actually went to law school when I was in middle school, but I reminded him daily that it was my idea first. So, ah, so when you joined the army, did you join as a JAG? So I initially, um, I commissioned actually, so I left the academy uh, due to some health issues, but I was able to get a medical waiver and commissioned through ROTC. So I was a scholarship okay. cadet in college. And so that meant that my debt was going to be repaid in time. Um, I applied for what's called an educational delay um, out of ROTC so that I could take a timeout, pay for law school on my own, and then apply to commission into the JAG Corps. Um, so I was branched military intelligence initially, um, and I was in part of the IRR when I was going through law school and then applied and, and then came. So my true active duty service came as a judge advocate. Gotcha. Yeah. And and it's funny because, you know, military intelligence, you're kind of in the information business. So I think that was probably a good precursor or a a good introduction to the to the world of law, which is we obviously have to have such a grasp of information and then serving on active duty in the army. um, I I saw a little bit of your longer bio, which is on your website, and you really did specialize in, in sexual crimes, even while you were in the military on both sides. Um, you prosecuted uh, sexual crimes as well, not not just as a defense attorney. And and tell me, what was it about those the nature of that type of work that drew you to want to do it? So interestingly enough, at least at the time when I first started serving as a judge advocate, it was the opportunities that just came to you by virtue of where you were. So mm-hmm. um, back then, trial counsel, that's the military prosecutor position, was dual-hatted. You had to provide legal advice to the command about what would be an appropriate disposition, you know, kind of the shoulds. Okay, these are your options. Um, and this is maybe where I think we should take this based off of what I, you know, know to be from my experience. So there's that command piece of it that I really enjoyed um, because I felt like I had a very um, good insight to be able to maybe stop injustice from happening before it did or to kind of help coach and mentor commanders. I think that they largely rely on their judge advocate and they, they can really be shaped by the temperament of that person mm-hmm. um, within reason, right? I mean, they're not completely deferring to you, but um, until you burn them, <laughs> they, they can, they're going to rely on you. Um, but then I also had, if the, or, the organic units to which I was assigned to provide legal advice, if there was any major misconduct that happened that ended up going to court, then I would also prosecute those cases. My first three cases out of just being a brand new prosecutor were um, child molestation cases. And so that actually became 
a, very much a subspecialty of mine. And I would return to that work intensely later when I was um, chosen to be a special victim prosecutor for the Army after I had done three years of defense work. Um, what was it about those cases, though, that kind of made you sort of go in that direction, though? Like, was there something was there something about like prosecuting those kinds of I mean, that's a that's a specialty that not a lot of people would would choose to do. Right. And so, you know, very much um, I think it became born of necessity because those were the cases that were handed to me. Right. I didn't mm -hmm. largely at least initially have you know, a hand in, in kind of that focus until later. But um, I felt an intense need to ensure that I was going to be um, uh, doing them justice, right? Like, especially those first few cases, I wasn't a mom yet. I am mm -hmm. now. I didn't know how to talk to kids. And so um, I felt such an intense pressure to make sure that I was um, doing the cases the right way. So I, I grew my own personal library. I also reached out to someone who specialized in forensic interviews of children. Um, and I drove across Germany to meet with him for sort of this crash course over about four and a half hours. Um, it, to me, I think how what has shaped the way that I've approached all cases was very much a part of that because um, essentially forensic interview techniques is about um, creating rapport and creating a comfort level so that you can be the voice for that person. And that's how that's shaped every, you know, both sides of the aisle mm -hmm. for me, to be able sure. to say, I'm, I'm helping this child. I'm helping this woman. I'm helping this man. I'm helping whoever it is who has felt um, silenced by what's happened to them to, to find their voice. Yeah, absolutely. And so <clears throat> when you made the decision to get out of the army, what, what influenced you to decide to leave active duty and then set up the practice that you, that you currently have now? Sure. I think it was a lot of factors. Um, one of the frustrations that I had when I was on active duty is that um, we were very much told by, you know, the, the powers that be that if we wanted to progress, if we wanted to make rank, if we wanted to move on, um, you needed to generalize. And I obviously was very much a specialist of a, I'm a military justice practitioner, you know, as on active duty, prosecuting sex crimes, I have a 100% conviction rate. I don't know that anyone else can say that. And I wanted, as I continued, I wanted to be able to continue to train, lead, mentor, um, and coach military justice practitioners. Um, I'd asked specifically to be able to stay after. So I was at this um, benchmark where you have to decide if you're going to stay and go to the graduate course, which is where... Um, you know, I know for a lot of officers um, and other branches, that's as an O3, you go to sort of your, you know, your career course. Um, for JAGS, it's at as an uh, as an O4, you go to the graduate course in Charlottesville, Virginia, and obtain an LLM in military law. And so, looking forward, it was either you know, if I stayed for that course, then of course I was going to owe more time after that. And so I talked to the assignments folks and said, you know, I really would like to stay in the courtroom. I really would, or at least to be able to teach um, at the school. And it was always a, a dream of mine to teach criminal law at the JAG school. And the, there's different portfolios about what people teach. And the portfolio that was coming up was the portfolio on evidence, you know, the evidentiary rules, really the meat and the potatoes, what I think is just so fundamental for people to know and understand. And 
I'm, I'm a nerd in that way. Like I, the, the way that the case law has developed it and it's just something that I've always had a passion for. And I was told they would never give me that job. They, I was told I was overqualified. I was too qualified and they needed to get me out of the courtroom if I was to progress. Um, you know, even wow. general, general officers who were wanting to mentor me into becoming a female general. They said, Jocelyn, we got to get you out of the courtroom. You, you know, you'll, you'll die on the vine, basically. Like, you'll never progress. We need you to become a staff to advocate. We need you to get back into administrative law. And, and I, I had, was already feeling some frustration just sort of from within mm-hmm. the system. I know I've kind of more recently been talking about this in some of my, my TikTok um, videos, but I also was encountering as a special prosecutor a big fight and, and pushback from military law enforcement um, who were resenting my sort of hands-on approach to getting involved in, in cases. There was one in particular where they did not believe the woman. They just didn't believe her. They said they brought in um, the man that she was accusing of um, kidnapping her, taking her across state lines and sexually assaulting her um, at knife point. I mean, this was a, a very serious case and they brought him in and they said, oh no, no, you know, we interviewed him and um, he told us she's just crazy. Um, long, long story. You can check it out. But like I interviewed her, we set up a pretext phone call because he was trying to call her and he copped to all of it. I mean, every, everything. <laughs> and wow. I think that they were embarrassed. I think ego got involved. Um, yeah. I tried to give some follow-up requests for, you know, leads to really shore up the case. And I was told in no uncertain terms that the investigation was clearly in my good hands and that I should just handle it. And so for me, it's like, look, I, you know, either side of the aisle, I respect both sides um, positions that they have and and the jobs that they have to do. But when I was needing to battle the people who were supposed to be on my side, it just was like, what I'm I'm battling hierarchy. I'm battling institutional ego. Like there's got to be a better way. Your story resonates so much with me, Jocelyn, because even as a public affairs officer, I tend to be very hands-on. And I find that, you know, I'm an 05 now. Um, they don't want you to be hands-on at my rank. They, they want you to just kind of play along to get along. And if you're the kind of person that wants to just dive in and dig in and, and, and like you, I, I, I'm a person that knows, I know the difference between real work and, and something that really takes time, like a well-produced product and then a product that's crap. And, and uh, it's, it's, it's tough as you move up in the ranks uh, to be, as involved. And, uh, you know, Stephen Neff, he's also an attorney and he said here, you know, he had the same dilemma. He got out and got a job at ASA so he could stay in the courtroom and do a lot of teaching at the National Advocacy uh, Center and training of federal, state, and local law enforcement. So I think that's something that's not just common to attorneys, but to a lot of us as we move up, we we still want to stay very hands-on and very involved. And I think it's unfortunate that in the military, um, it's the same way in the public affairs community. I bet it's very similar to the intel in a lot of these information fields. They don't want you to be a specialist, but as a specialist, you're you're more powerful than you are as a generalist. Absolutely. I, I came to be quite a lethal prosecutor. Um, I also was an insanely effective defense attorney because I, I understood how a case should be constructed. And so I knew where I needed to go to try to deconstruct it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also found that my skills as a prosecutor are what I use most actually as a defense attorney, because part of, uh, you know, every closing argument that I give is 
what should the government have done? Where are yeah. their feelings? What did they not bring you? Because I'm thinking if I wanted to try to prove this case, where, what are the leads I would be attacking? Well, you know, where would I go? And, and largely we're doing, a, I, mean, I just got out of a case where, you know, the government, it was a urinalysis case. The woman who had tested positive for amphetamines had been proclaiming her innocence from the get-go. Um, and the government said in their case, all we're required to do is put on the UA. That's all we have to do. There's nothing else that's required, but I put on, you know, so they put on the evidence of the urine sample, where it went to observe mm -hmm. it, you know, the lab. And then I put on 21 witnesses about our investigation. We tested supplements at a private lab at private cost. We did hair follicle analysis. We did another urine screen, like all of these things that we were doing um, to demonstrate that she was factually innocent. And the repetitive theme of that was all we needed to do was just to get, you know, that probable cause determination from law enforcement. That's all we have to do. And I'm like, that's, that should disturb everyone, <laughs> right? Yeah. That sort of this idea that it's good enough for government um, because it's not, you know, we're talking about people's lives and careers and it's just not enough just to get by. So Kristen asked this too, going back to your time uh, working with uh, the victim with victims. And she says that, you know, being that you helped a lot of the victims during that time, how did, how did you stay relevant and well-versed on the new terminology and sexual typologies as you were working with victims? Like, what did you do? And then how did it also affect you mentally to work with the victims? Yeah. So I definitely want to talk about how it affected me um, mentally. And one of the areas where I've really come to study and, and really, I blog a lot about it um, because I think it's so important that people understand that as attorneys, we are often wounded healers, right? Like we are, um, in addition to whatever past experiences I bring to the table, um, the ABA, the American Bar Association and, and multiple journals are now recognizing that even receiving and hearing their stories um, is creates vicarious trauma, actual oh, yeah. trauma. Um, that I relive every time that I'm talking to a child or talking to an alleged victim or talking to my clients who, you know, who are honestly suffering a trauma themselves, right? Um, it, it's deeply, deeply af affects me. Um, I know I was, um, my first stint of counseling came the year after I left active duty. Number one, I had to sort of mourn the loss of a dream. Um, because I had, I was re-identifying who I was and, and going yeah. a different direction. Um, but I also did not even begin to understand how much my cases had affected me, how much the, the telling the stories of those children and telling the stories of these victims um, and carrying the trauma of the people who were accused, whether rightly or wrongly accused, because it's still a trauma. It's still... Um, they are isolated. They are, you know, whether it's the victim, whether it's the alleged perpetrator, they become isolated. They get their jobs usually taken away from them. So even sort of that reason that they get up every day and feel drawn to a mission, right? I think so many of us who serve and that's mm -hmm. either what got us there or keeps us there is, um, you know, and not to sound cheesy, but doing something bigger that, that oh, yeah. you're part of it, right? And being part of this camaraderie, this this amazing team. Yeah. Absolutely. And as soon as an allegation comes up, whether, you know, and happens for the victims too, right? Like they are, they become ostracized about making their allegation or certainly the, it just, it really creates a division in units. You can see it happen. Um, so absolutely has affected me in the way that I have had 
you know, my personal relationships with other individuals. I, I, the one day that I knew I needed to really, really do some, some deep work on myself was a day that I was actually a civilian and I had a very disproportionate response to something that should have been mildly annoying. Um, a prosecutor told me about a new witness or a new line of questioning that they had just learned. And um, it was on a case that I felt extremely passionate about. It would end up being a two week long trial where my client was acquitted of some, and rightfully so, some very, very heinous allegations of child sexual abuse. Um, and so rather than just sort of being mildly annoyed, I mean, I, I blew my top in a mm -hmm. very significant and unprofessional way. Um, and I said, whoa, <laughs> I, I feel like maybe what just happened is not about the thing in front of me, right? Like there's right. something that I really need to get to. So I've done a great deal. I still um, involved in, you know, deep work. In addition to just talk therapy, I'm also a huge proponent of EMDR because I, I, I myself am um, diagnosed with PTSD and anxiety. So mm -hmm. I think on the one hand, um, the cases that I've taken have deeply affected me to a point where I need to, you know, definitely manage my own um, past issues and my own self-care. But also, I think it has made me um, really understand the experience of the people that I am representing and the people who I have stood up for, um, because I have such an, a deep, caring closeness to it as a topic um, on the whole, if that makes sense. It totally makes sense. It really does. I think those are the best kinds of, like you said, the best kinds of people that can help others are the people that have been through those things themselves or that deeply feel uh, what people are, are going through. And the fact that, Jocelyn, you, you, you represent both sides. You've represented the accused and you've represented the people who faced an accusation. And so what I want to transition to now and this is sort of what I wanted sort of the crux of the show to be about, because I feel that there's a lot of people who think that, you know, false accusations don't happen. They just, they think they're very rare, you know, the 1% of the time, because why would somebody lie? And I'd like to give you an opportunity with your experience uh, to address that issue and to talk more about what your experiences has been like uh, handling those kinds of cases. Sure. And I think, I think it's important to note that, <laughs> when most people hear the term false accusation or false allegation, they go to what I consider to be a very, in that kind of that 1%, the very um, small minority of cases where a person has made a conscious decision in their mind that they are aware that this was not an experience they had and they are intentionally bringing forth um, a false allegation in that sense. Like it's some kind of revenge. That's what people right. think. It Whatever, is. you know, you can, and, and mm -hmm. I can, I've had those experiences, right? And, and I am the first to make sure that, you know, because I'm a, I'm a science person. Uh, I very much am a science person. And so I, I also in my process and understand, and, and whenever I'm talking about this, I want to make it very clear that I also am aware of the bias that I have because largely the people who self identify as innocent are the ones who are shelling out the dough to hire somebody like me. So right. I see a skewed um, number of these cases because of just my, my position, right? Right, because they're seeking the people who have had these accusations, they're seeking you out. So of course, you're going to have more experience with them and see them more than I think most people. 
Right. Because if, if they, if they know that they did it and they're pleading guilty, they typically take their assigned military counsel and plead guilty and get the best deal they can. Um, so I'm, I also just don't see the same strata now in this job, um, having done this for more than 11 years in private practice. So I also, you know, I give the caveat there too, that I, you know, I'm, I'm giving this perspective, but also I have to recognize and self-recognize that it's skewed. So, but I think, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity because I think it's so important as part of the dialogue that when, because I think people are super resistant that there's a large number of people who are intentionally, you know, giving these false accusations. I would agree. Um, they, they are the minority. What I see as a greater chasm and what I think where the dialogue, you know, also needs to, to lie is in the fact that there is a lot of false information that is put out to people that is causing people to believe that they are a victim of a sexual assault under the law. Right. And the other piece in this, and I was just, you know, giving some content about it is that it's so important to, to validate a person's experience, but to also recognize that their experience may not meet the elements of a crime. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. And, and people have been trained to think that if you're drunk, you cannot give consent. I mean, I, I've been through those, those big sapper briefs where people say that when you're drinking, there's no such thing as consent. Right. And that's, that's one of the myths that I keep trying to tackle. Um, I even had, um, so, you know, one of the processes that we go through in a, in a jury trial and in, in any jury trial, whether it's civilian or defense, is you have the opportunity to talk to the people who are going to sit on that jury and to see if there's any biases or preconceived notions or information that you need to dispel to make sure that they can be fair and impartial on the case. And I had a trial out of Fort Leavenworth years ago. Um, my client was an 04. And so obviously the members on the case have to be 05s or 06s. And the judge almost did not allow me to ask the question of, you know, who here has been trained or who here has heard in briefings that if you've had even one drink of alcohol that you cannot legally consent. The judge was just like, are you kidding me? I mean, these are 05s, these are 06s. Of course they know that that's not the case. And I said, judge, what, what is it her task, right? If it doesn't produce mm -hmm. any affirmative responses, then we move on. But look, I'm telling you, ask the question, yeah. as an 03, I sat at a huge briefing in processing at Fort Hood, Texas, when that's what the sharp trainer was teaching. And right. It, you know, blew my mind. And so judge allowed us to ask the question, two thirds of that panel of 05s and 06s raised their hand. Yeah, that absolutely was their belief that if you've had even one drink of alcohol that you can't consent, I want to be very clear, that is not anywhere close to the law. And that's what the judge admonished them almost immediately after. I didn't even get to ask any follow-ups. He, you know, that is not the law. That is not the law. And I just yesterday, I had a comment on one of my TikTok videos where someone said that if you've had any alcohol, you can't consent. And I, <laughs> that's not accurate. That's not true. And so when people are told that in briefings, when that is reinforced, when they maybe talk to a victim advocate, when they talk to maybe a sexual assault nurse examiner, uh, there was a, a sane nurse in um, Germany who we had to uh, take action to have her um, declassified to be able to do that because women were coming in saying, hey, I don't, and it's such a needed process, right? Like I drank too much last night 
I'm pretty sure I had a sexual encounter, but I don't remember if he used protection. And so I now am seeking medical help. That's great, amazing, wonderful. That's what those resources are there for. And this particular 05 was then convincing them that if they couldn't remember that they had been assaulted. Encouraging them. And we were getting all of these, what I call false allegations, because they were convinced that if they had the absence of memory of consenting, that that meant they couldn't. So what, and I'm sure you've addressed this on your TikTok then, what is considered consent when you've had alcohol? Because the majority of these cases, I would say, I mean, it seems like 99.9, but I don't know what the statistics are, but the majority of these cases that happen, uh, happen when there's alcohol involved. So if we want to just assume that alcohol is going to be involved, how, how, how do people differentiate in the eyes of the law? of what's consent and what's not consent. Right. So the instruction that you would get if you were sitting on a military jury about what is um, what is legal consent, it's a couple pages. It's very long. It's very complicated. Um, I was actually once in, in a case with a judge who said, do I really need to give the instruction on consent? I feel like it's just so universally understood. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not, Your Honor. <laughs> It's really not a gift to the bench book um, uh, instruction. And so, you know, what I always tell people is that it like a lawyer, right? It depends. Right. And so one of the factors is definitely lack of memory. Right. If this person has an absence of, of consenting, that is certainly a factor to play in. But understanding what we know about the way that memory is encoded because it's of a blackout versus a pass out. Right. A person. Um, I like to go back to my analogies of, um, you know, those old school uh, <laughs> cassette players when you also might want to dub something off the radio or copy another tape. Right. So when, when our when our memories are working appropriately and when our brains are not um, completely satiated by alcohol, we've got the play button going and then that little red button that's in the center of it pressed down too to record. Right. So on a normal day, we're recording, we're, we're doing all these things. When alcohol becomes, uh, you know, a, a, such a huge factor and whether it's because the person hasn't been eating very much or the person is taking shots of alcohol, you know, all these risk factors and women are higher at risk to, to have a blackout than a, than a man. Um, all that's going is the play, right? So a person is walking, talking, participating in sexual activity and doing all these things to where their partner doesn't know that they can't remember, right? That's a blackout. And so Part of the b- debate, and, and I just was talking, you know, chatting with somebody in comments more recently, was their frustration and this idea that um, it should be it should be only the person's experience who is saying that they were assaulted that gets taken into consideration, and that's not the case, right? So, because the other side of consent, the other side of this dialogue, is a defense known as mistake of fact is to consent. Right. Mm-hmm. So the the law permits and recognizes that even if that person has a firm belief that that was an assaulted, an assaultive event because they don't remember consenting, we have to also flip it on its head to say, and it's two parts. Did the person who was their partner personally and actually believe that the person that they were with was consenting? And was, would that be reasonable under the circumstance? 
And the reason that second part is so critical is because there is a pathology of people out there who um, might think that a, a lifeless body is contenting. Well, she didn't say no. I saw that on the case. <laughs> very, 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 very scary for that pathology to present itself, right? Well, she didn't say no. It was like, okay, well, under the circumstances, would she have been able to? She was silent because she was passed out and unconscious, right? Under those circumstances, it's not reasonable for that person to believe that they were consenting. So the frustration and the tension that lies, and I, and I think what people don't necessarily understand without being able to articulate it, is that what they wish, the people who have a hard time accepting this idea that there's a mistake of fact is to consent as a defense, is that what they're really hoping for is a strict liability, right? Like if the person has been consenting, it has been drinking, they are legally not able to consent. And so we're gonna decide as a matter of law that they did not. And, and the law does that with kids, right? So anybody under the age of 16 cannot lawfully consent to, to sexual activity. We have decided as, as, a, as a society, yes. We're yes. gonna draw that line. And actually, I think it was about four or five years ago, and I know we're gonna talk about the latest NDAA, but um, one of the proposals was, um, was that. There were, there were two that were um, defeated that have never made its way into military law. The one was um, if there is a certain number of differentiation of rank, we're per se gonna decide that it had lacked consent. But that's no personal responsibility on, on both sides. I mean, I, oh, it just kills me because I, I get where that's coming from, but it kind of reminds me, and I know this is probably going to be a bad case that maybe people will be pissed at me about, but it's like the Matt Lauer case. Like if, you, if you've studied that case, you know, he, yes, he abused his power. He absolutely abused his power. But in every single one of those cases, I mean, everything that I've seen of that case it was always consensual and it was always a transactional relationship. And I, I hate to, to, to blame the victim, but where does that responsibility lie? And when we make these blanket rules, like I can kind of understand the one with statutory rape because children don't have completely developing brains and, you know, we want to protect children. But to, to say that if you take one drink of alcohol, you have no responsibility. How, how does that teach people responsible drinking? How does that teach people to control the amount of alcohol they're, they're bringing into their body and not numbing with a device and learning how to be confident and be themselves without a device? And, 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 and I just think that that's, we're, we're taking away that, that responsibility on both ends. And I, I have to wonder, do most of these cases just turn into a he said, she said with witnesses and text messages. I saw your 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 video about the the cadet story and having those text messages and how that just changed everything in the course of the case. And so I'm curious. In a lot of these cases, is that what they these come down to? Are just he said, she said, and being able to try to prove the credibility on both sides? Is that well? And I think there's a lot in that question. So I know. I'm sorry. That was kind no, of a loaded no, no, no. question. And I and I want to <laughs> I want to make sure I address each part of it. So in terms of personal responsibility, absolutely. I I definitely see in these cases, but I, I also, you know, have a, um, a mother's heart, you know, for, for several teenage boys and I've got a daughter too, right? Like, but when, when you, I when you're having this dialogue also, what I also find people saying is, okay, well, if you can't have, you know, alcohol and consent, then why is the female 
and the scenario of the victim. Because typically he's been drinking too. So, you know, and I get asked a lot, well, mm, hey, should I question. just should I just go report first? Right? If <laughs> I'm <drinking. laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's that's a problem because our society has a significant bias itself. So I know right. of a case, um, and this pretty controversial, but like there was a male um, who was in a relationship that he felt like had turned really toxic and really honestly abusive. She was incredibly sexually aggressive with him. And one encounter in particular gave him such um, discomfort that he went to report it. He, you know, he reported as a victim by a woman. And so, I mean, you can kind of see where this is going, right? They, they pull her in. Um, I don't even, I think they may have advised her rights. I'm not sure what happened, but she said, oh, no, no, no. He is the one. He is the one who was the aggressor. I am assaulted. They titled the gentleman with false official statement and went after him. Even the, And so then um, I'm aware that his defense did a deep dive. This is crazy. Um, she had an Interpol criminal history. She was from South Africa. And she had been arrested twice for sexually aggressive behavior toward men when she was acting as a prostitute. Wow. This was part of her pathology and whether it's, and I'm going to go with out on a limb and say, you know, it was part of a prior trauma on her part. Sure. Or maybe she's mastering something horrific that happened to her. Yep. But he got drummed out. I mean, he was given an official reprimand by the army and he was made to leave, um, to resign his commission and made to leave when there was overwhelming evidence that absolutely his experience was the one that needed to be validated. Um, and so when men ask me, well, doesn't that just mean he's a victim too? Like maybe, but you are putting yourself in deep peril to come out as the person who was the alleged victim because of this intense, you know, dichotomy and in, in the sexual structure of our, of our, of our, our society. society. That, that's a societal issue too, not just a military issue. That, Absolutely. That we have to move at some point. I believe that as we progress as a society, we will move past. Um, how has it been for you to prosecute? I mean, to defend these cases? Uh, do you believe that the military justice system is set up to be fair towards uh, men who, or women, it really, I guess, wouldn't matter. But for people, when people come to re be represented uh, for a case, do you believe that the military conducts uh, a fair trial? I mean, there's been so much controversy about military law as of late. And, and, and you know, there was a story in the War Horse about uh, the Marine JAG system. And then there was of course, the Eddie Gallagher case. And then after the Eddie Gallagher case, I just heard about a new case, another SEAL named Keith Barry, who um, went to jail for two years, uh, finally was acquitted uh, and cleared of his crimes. But do you believe that the military justice system gives people um, a fair, a fair, a fair, I mean, a fair shake? So another really, really dense question that I need to definitely try to yep. work through the layers of. So I would say that um, there are aspects of the military justice system that at one time I fervently believed were more fair than the civilian system. However, mm -hmm. because of intense scrutiny, the military losing the PR battle, um, 
and in, in developing this idea that there is a higher number of sexual assault cases happening in the military, that congressional oversight has caused significant amendments to the way that the military justice system works that are not designed to be more fair and have eroded many of the protections that military members once had. One comes to mind um, right away, and that's the change in Article 32. So Article 32, bravo, um, used to encompass an investigation, it, not unlike um, you know, a command investigation that would happen um, before a case could be sent forward to a general court martial, which is the equivalent of a felony level trial. That person um, used to enable the defense to be able to conduct actual discovery in that process, um, to obtain documents, to obtain records, to call the alleged victim to testify at the preliminary at this preliminary you know event at this 32 investigation. Um, significant and substantial overhaul of that means no longer is an alleged victim brought to those. Um, they are they are given a statutory right to not only refuse to participate, but they can sit in on the entire thing. They can listen to all of the other evidence. They can listen to closing sides, closing arguments from both sides. They can obtain a copy of the evidence that if I decide to put it in at the 32 and, and then not participate, um, just be there and receive information. So, um, also, investigation is no longer even in the title of an Article 32. It's now called a preliminary hearing. Um, I hear from most counsel that because of the changes, they are largely being waived, which I think is a, a really, really um, big mistake. Even within the changes, there is a way to get witnesses at a 32. There is a way to get records. It's harder. Um, you have to do your homework ahead of time so that you can say, this is what this person would say, and this is why it's not included in their sworn statement, why it's not in the packet. Because all the prosecutors do now is shove paper to this investigating, not even investigating officer, but this preliminary hearing officer, and say, we've got probable cause, rubber stamp, move on. So no longer is there a meaningful speed bump on the way mm -hmm. to a trial anymore. Um, that has been completely eroded and it's being done under the auspices of let's make it more like the civilians. Okay. Well, let's remember historically why we gave that additional measure. And it's because of the structure of the military, right? There are other safeguards to make sure that military members are not pleading guilty to things that they don't believe they're, you know, they should because of command telling them to do it. Right. There's so many things about um, command structure and the disparate, you know, levels of a person feeling like they have a voice that formed the basis for having these added protections in the first place. So this notion that we should remove all of those additional protections because we want to make it more like the civilians is, is gut-wrenching to me because it misaligns and takes away from the why, right? Why, why was that process there? Because we don't just want you know, soldiers and, and members getting railroaded because they happen to be junior. Um, mm -hmm. So it, the military lost the PR battle. They're, they're still losing it every day. I remember, I remember, you know, when, um, and I can't even call it a documentary, but a, a film came out, uh, The Invisible War, right? Yes. 
Yep. It's a defining moment for so many of us, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it gave so many people this impression that the military is running around with just a bunch of, you know, rapists. Yep, and, it did. Absolutely. And, and at the time, I was um, already a special victim prosecutor, and the film's makers had requested that one of us get interviewed to give our impression, to give a voice to what was the military doing to try to combat um, sexual assault in the military. And I was ready. I was ready to be that poster child to say, look, long before this, you know, the first change in the law, it was effective the 1st of October, 2007. And um, the military had already then put into place effective, it was 2000, let's see, I became one in 2010. So it was 2009 when they stood up. And there were 15 slots in the army and they were able to fill eight of them. And the rest of us came in that second wave the following year because we were finishing up other assignments so that we had a full 15. And any one of us would have been a great face to say, OK, well, first off, you're making it seem like it's all reactionary. We have been getting ahead of this and recognizing that things needed to change long before, you know, the Invisible War came out. And that was never shown. Like our existence was never revealed um, that we were this, you know, elite squad of people who were just going to be prosecuting sex crimes. That was, and so that has, I think, and, con and continuous blunders, the Vanessa Guillen story, the Gallagher, like there's been so many that have caused reactionary responses with really bad PR that has largely led to these um what I think are amendments that are making it worse. Right. And even if in those particular cases, those bad things did happen there, the, the military justice system, it isn't like it's a, it's, it has its own, it doesn't have its own public broadcasting system or a mechanism by which to talk about all the cases where accountability is delivered, or there is that uh, justice that's, that's sought and, 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 people walk away uh, feeling uh, some sense of closure. We're not hearing about those cases in the news. Right. We're well, just hearing, you know. Absolutely. And I think a big part of that is because they're looking at statistics and not really understanding what those statistics mean, right? Any, in any arena, polit politics, what have you, we can take a stat and we can make it say something else. I have been preaching for more than a decade that the skewed, understanding or belief about the military being full of a bunch of people committing sexual assault is because military law enforcement is um, founding an inordinate number of cases that should not be founded. Many of them are being founded where even the articulation of what the victim, alleged victim is saying does not amount to the elements of an assault. And right. so we're being told, oh, there were, you know, 25,000 cases in one year mm -hmm. that were founded by law enforcement. I'm here to tell you, not all those cases should have been founded. Um, and then because of oversight and because of this impression that I will not make my next star if I am where I'm the person who's making the tough call to say this case should not go forward, there is a um, just an exodus of leadership where they are taking every case forward, no matter how bad the case, um, mm. because they don't want to be seen as- um, Soft on sexual assault. 
Yes, because they know in their next, you know, confirmation hearing, they're going to be asked about it. Oh my um, gosh. That's a mess. What a mess. It is. It is a mess. And so what, you know, I, and maybe this is a good time to transition to the, to the next NDAA, you know, mm-hmm. there's been, because of all of this, and because of this idea that the military is botching these prosecutions, um, which in part, I'm not going to disagree with, because there's a, a significant issue with training and keeping experienced counsel in the room um, and in military justice. Now they are trying to say that, okay, we're going to have this independent mm-hmm. prosecutor's office, right? Who's going to be making these decisions. I happen to think, and I've been saying for years that if this actually happens, it's going to have the reverse effect than what people think it's going to have. If someone is mm. meaningfully looking at these cases, they are going to be getting handled in a way that's more like the civilian world where prosecutors only charge cases that they know with 100% they can prove. They've got, you know, an eyewitness who's a nun on the way to church. They've got a confession. They've got cases that they 100% know that they can win. Those are the ones that are getting taken, taken forward. Where I think we're going to see substantial increase is in the amount of these cases that are going to be handled with administrative separations and boards of inquiry. But don't you think, Jocelyn, that's kind of a good thing that this outside entity is going to come in and is going to validate the 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 evidentiary rules and is going to validate that these cases that you you know what i'm saying like is that really a bad thing like the part that i think is a bad thing is is separating the crimes as i read about it there's now going to be 14 crimes that they're going to say or whatever the number was these are the crimes that will take outside the chain of command i just think that like how do you, how are you going to splice and dice? Like what, what, what crimes? I think they're only crimes that are related to a sexual nature, but I think even um, some domestic violence and then killing of a, or a, hurting a child. I mean, some of these other crimes are also going to be considered the ones that get outside. And so how, how did they slice and dice which ones go outside the chain versus which ones get handled within the chain? Right. So from the, what I've read of the committee meetings and, and what was put forward, the mm-hmm. reason and or the, the way that they allocated these, because they wanted murder included, right? Right. Um, because of the pressures of Vanessa Guillen's case and others, um, they, that, that was a substantial reason why they wanted to um, also carve out murder, but that was not supported. Um, the, the 14 or so, or, you know, the sexual offense cases that are being um, divvied out, it's because of PR. It's because they are cases where there have been so many complaints about, well, this was my case and it didn't get taken forward. And those are the ones that people, you know, are jumping up up and down about and and caring about is the best way that I can describe it. Um, Do I think it's a good thing? I think it has the potential to be a good thing, Mm -hmm. but I'm very wary about how it's going to be carried out. I don't know who they're going to, or how they're going to structure who it is that's going to be the independent person. What does this person know about military crimes? What does this person know about military culture? One of the big uh, criticisms that I've had is that um, the military has hired um, people who are no longer in the military to um, plus up and to help the training modules, right? So for the army, they're known as HQEs, highly qualified experts. I think that's a great idea, right? Like, hey, maybe we're not doing a great job. Let's bring in some outside knowledge. Sure. I've seen, on the one hand, the defense utilizing retired military judges who have a great grasp 
of military justice and are they are being utilized in meaningful and exceptional ways. Whereas I've seen for the Army side of the prosecutions, they've brought in HQEs who have never tried cases in the military, never served. And so there is such a difference in what they're being encouraged to do because they don't understand the culture. It really, yeah. it's, it's substantial and it's different. And so although I think in theory it has the benefit of potentially being great, I am kind of going to sit back and, and decide at some point, you know, I need to see how they're going to implement it. Cause I'm just, I'm skeptical. Right. Right. It will be interesting to see what, what takes place and then how it, how it plays out. And, and, you know, sadly, like you said, we only do hear about the, the, the botched cases and, and the, and the PR problems that they go on within military justice. And we don't hear those success stories where, like you said, people do get that accountability. Can you, can you give us, I mean, I, I read the one on your TikTok, but can you give us sort of an example of a case that where somebody was falsely accused and, and you were able to use the, the existing rules to successfully win for your client? Sure. I mean, and those cases are, are more than, um, yeah. <laughs> so it, pick one, right? So um, I, you know, I, I, I would say that, you know, one of the most memorable for me is, and, and this one's really hard for me to talk about, but um, I had a client who was, uh, falsely accused of forcible rape by strangulation as part of, um, they had met online, um, talked about it ahead of time that it was going to be a hookup from tender. And when push came to shove, like our dis extensive defense investigation revealed that her motivation, cause she staged it, she staged it as a rape. Um, she even, painted on like some fake injury to try to show her spouse over a FaceTime. Um, she was engaging in sexual activity involving consensual strangulation with somebody else before then um, because she was setting this guy up. And you're like, how could this happen? Like, why would somebody ever do this? Well, we did a very deep dive and came to find out that she was in a forced open marriage. She was being forced emotionally or otherwise by her spouse to hook up with various men, and then to report back about their activities. She didn't want to do it anymore. And the best that I can understand is that she felt like if she told him that she was raped, that he wouldn't make her do this anymore. Oh, that's horrifying. It, 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 it was absolutely horrifying. And the, the hardest, there are many hard parts about this case for me, but one of the hardest was that you know, when I looked at the file and I looked at the injury and I looked at her allegation because she was saying, look, yes, initially this was part of a hookup, but then I changed my mind and he got really scary and he did all these terrible things to me. I was really worried for him. And I actually did what I've never do. And I approached the government about their best offer. You know, I told him, I said, I'm really worried for you. Like this could be decades. You could, you could be facing decades if you're found guilty. And I think you really need to consider a plea. And he cried and he said, I, I can't say that I did something I didn't do. And I'm so grateful for his resolve because I don't, I don't know that everyone, you know, would have that. And then we learned about all of the backstory. We learned that it absolutely was a false allegation. And on the one hand, I can have compassion for her because she was in a terrible situation, but that was not the way to get out of it. Right. right. And um, he was fully acquitted and it was such a relief 
And then just over a year later, he took his own life. So we won justice, but he didn't, right? I mean, it, it's taken a lot of work for me to get over that. I, and I'm still not over it. We were very deeply close. Um, you know, I spoke to his mom and I was invited to the family's memorial and I was so devastated. I could not be there, but they asked. And of course I accepted to be their representative at the military's service. Um, it's not something you get over. And when the person greeted me there at the door, because I'm the only civilian and I'm walking into this chapel filled with military in uniform to be taken down to the front row. And he looked at me and he said, oh, were you his lawyer? And I said, stop. I was his friend. Don't like, don't reduce me or him in his memory to that. Right. I was his friend. Um, He told his mom, that he couldn't wait to show up and surprise me, you know, 10, 15 years in the future at my office with his family and his kids that he wanted to have to show me the life that I helped him to get. And it just, it's, it's soul crushing that the world lost him and they yeah. absolutely lost him because of this allegation. And I hold that woman responsible for his death. I do too. And I think that what you're really showing me through this conversation and something I don't think I had really thought about is that, in a lot of these cases, I do believe that the people who are accusing in their minds, there is a reason. Like you said, it's not this, I'm out to get you, revenge, revenge, revenge. I believe that sometimes with alcohol, you they maybe really don't know that they consented. They really don't know. And with the culture and the Me Too and, and just believing victims and and what people have been told. I I, I do believe that right now we might even be in a place where there is sort of an overreaction sometimes. And it's the job of, of, of good, good lawyers uh, to, to fully investigate these cases and to, like you said, have the training and the experience uh, to understand how to get to the bottom of these cases and to get the appropriate outcome. And it, it, it just, it's not an easy job at all. I, I, I don't envy you, Jocelyn. This is not easy stuff to deal with. Sure. It really isn't. Um, what would you say has been probably one of the most uh, rewarding cases that you've had? So many of them, right? Like I just, I, I know in my heart, um, whether you are a spiritual person, whether you're, you know, whatever, if you believe there's a higher power, if you don't, like whatever you're, your faith system, I 100% know that the people whose paths that cross with mine was for an absolute reason, you know, and I'll, and I'll get, I'll share another one with you in just a moment, but you know, I think what's so fascinating for me and to help me to know and understand that my higher power led me to that last case was that um, in the course of an interview, I came to realize that I knew the previous spouse of, of that client's accuser. I knew him and I reached out to him and I said, I'm so sorry to have to do, like, I remember serving with you at a time in our defense office when you were going through a divorce and I knew it was not an easy time for you. Um, This man ended up as an assistant U.S. attorney, um, which is a highly coveted, highly respected job as a federal prosecutor. And um, he, he revealed to me so many things that helped me to understand her to really further my investigation 
And I said, you know, I'm so sorry for you that you have to relive this to me. And he said, if it wasn't you, if it was anybody else who called me, I don't, I don't know that I'd be revealing all these things. Like he's, he's blessed to have you number one, because of your, your an exceptional attorney, but also because you have this personal connection with me that would help me to, to reveal these things to you. He came and testified in his opinion that um, his former spouse is not a truthful person. He's a federal prosecutor putting the weight of his reputation behind that statement, which that would never have happened for somebody else, I don't think. And so um, what an amazing connection that we had um, to be able to, you know, it's a small world, it's a small army, it's a, like, that's crazy coincidental. Um, but I think, yeah, I think one of the most meaningful cases, certainly that I have experienced was one where, you know, the world doesn't necessarily know the success, right, behind it. Um, it's going to be a topic, it's going to, it's a chapter already in, in my next book that's coming out. Um, my book is called, it has been my honor and each chapter is a person's story. Each chapter is a person's life, um, who I got to meaningfully impact. And I'll tell you, I think it's such an important part of the narrative because there is still the societal belief that if, even if you were acquitted, the fact that you were ever accused means that you must've been doing something wrong mm -hmm. with the wrong people. And I have had the opportunity to represent bona fide American heroes who, who did nothing wrong. And um, one of them is a conspiracy. Like, like I'm like, oh, this is, you know, as I'm trying to digest the case, like, really? Is this really? It is <laughs> um, monumental, monumental with TSSCI materials and, you know, just a fascinating way to be able to stand up for, you know, that client is a, is a woman who has been number one in everything she's ever done in the military. And because she wanted to speak truth, the system tried to silence her. Wow. They took it to an article 32. I had been her attorney for more than four years on a, on a file that was more than 20,000 pages. I mean, and they, held the pro first article 32 without me. Whoa. She, she didn't even have, I'd been, I mean, it's, it, it will blow your mind. And so obviously we got into a front of a judge, the judge said, no, not okay. Redo. Second 32 lasted three days. Um, called a retired combatant commander to attest to the conspiracy that happened and why she was even being made to face these charges, which had nothing to do with um, the, I mean, it conspiracy of the highest order. And I am so grateful that she's letting me tell her story because right now there's only one side of the story in the media. And even though we released to the press that she had been, that they dismissed all charges, that story never got told because that, that one isn't as fun, right? We're not right. ripping someone's life apart. We're not, saying that they did horrible things. We're not vindicating them because that that's just less interesting, right? Um, it's infuriating. And I gave the I gave them, I gave them everything they needed um, because it's not okay for me that she was lambasted in the press the way that she was knowing her to be this pillar of integrity and strength and all that's right. And the people that we want to be serving in our military, but they, they silenced her.
Oh, I just, I can't wait to read the story now. You have, you've got me interested. I'm like, whoa, what, what case could that, could that be? Is it something I've heard of or, or something that you just, you read it. And it's, it's sad because the news cycle get, goes so fast and all, all people care about sometimes is they get that big head. They, they're, they're busy and, and we just move on to the next story. But, you know, these are people's lives and these are people's lives. You're irre, irrevocably or irrevocably damaged uh, by these, like you said, these accusations. And one of the things that I hope to see one day is some sort of consequences for accusations that turn out to be unsubstantiated. Is there any redress in terms of civil litigation or anything else uh, when it comes to a false accusation? So maybe. Um, what I'll say is that largely in the military, they have decided kind of across the line that they're not going to try to prosecute a false allegation. I know of two cases in the last 19 years where they sought it. Um, Two. Um, More recently, I had a client who I 100% proved that his case was an intentional false allegation. Mm -hmm. And the Navy, to their credit, was willing to take it forward. Um, I had relationship built relationships with that prosecutor's office over many years and she the the false accuser um transferred and went to that jurisdiction and i said oh here we go you know i finally this is the one like let's do it let's do it and my client said i can't he said the um, like just the emotional wear and tear on him having to relive it again was more than he could, um, more than he could withstand. And I, I respect his decision, um, more than he will ever know or understand because I also, like, I remember vividly arguing. I was like, I was like eight months pregnant with my third arguing this closing argument in, in Fort Riley, Kansas about, um, because the the victim in that case who had taken the stand and, and had endured the most despicable cross-examination I've ever seen by a defense attorney. Nothing that I would ever emulate, nothing that I would ever hope on my worst enemy. And she was in, had, took a restroom break, almost didn't come back to the stand, was vomiting, you know, dry heaving in the restroom, just being so horrified. And, but then needing to communicate to her that if she didn't come back out her, her direct would be stricken. So there would be no case. There would be no, no justice. And I remember vividly arguing in my closing argument of that. It was like, we ask too much. The system at times asks too much of victims to endure. Like no wonder women don't go forward. No wonder women who are righteous come forward and then say, I can't do this. Right. I, so I want to make sure and understand that people get an appreciation that I'm not someone who doesn't get that on many levels. Um, there is a way to find justice for falsely accused people, falsely in the sense of this does not meet the elements, right? There's a way to do that that has dignity and has respect and so can validate their experience. Um, but I understood on many levels, having lived that for people, why he, in this instance, couldn't do it. And, and boy, man, did I want it, right? Like I wanted it yeah. to be a poster child for 
people knowing like don't people who make that decision to intentionally deceive and to intentionally bring forth a case that they know not to be righteous um you know and the argument against it right the policy against it and why how the military justifies not doing it is they don't want to quiet other voices who otherwise yeah wouldn't be believed that's a tough it's, issue exactly like like you know and 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 my friend sarah has joined us she's from uh she does a podcast called the power of our story and she's been saying a bunch of these kinds of things too, you know, like she says here, you know, that's right. These are people's lives. And, uh, you know, and she was saying, when I was telling you, I don't envy you, she's like, I don't envy you either, Jocelyn. This is tough and top complicated stuff. This is not, these are not easy, easy, easy issues or easy cases. And I think sometimes, you know, what we see publicly, um, tends to be polarized good or bad because good or bad is easy. But the answer to a lot of these issues, as I'm seeing from what you're saying, is there's, 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 there's the truth is murky and it's somewhere in the middle. And it's, 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 it's an incredibly complicated process to, to unravel and to make better. Um, going forward, uh, tell me a little bit about, uh, now you did write, uh, I think, three books about motions. I did see that. Um, just very briefly, I think that was more for the law community, but I think it's important for people to understand, like, what are motions and what what was one of the reasons you wrote that book? Sure. So um, it's part of a series. It's my Shaping the Battlefield series um, about kind of all of the other things that shape military justice and where I've seen some deficiencies in training. Um, I, I'm someone who very much believes that if I um, am going to complain about something, or if I'm going to recognize a deficit, then I also need to be a part of trying to fix it. So that's where that passion for these books came from. And so it's part of a more of a how-to type series to help improve the practice, whether a prosecutor or defense in military justice. And, and I said, well, you know, and it, again, I'm a nerd. Um, it was kind of fun for me because motions practice is such, um, I think, such an important part of the practice. And there's just very, very little training about it. And so I broke down my process. Okay, I've had success at this. How do I write these? Right. Um, and so I've given just step by step how to do it. Um, and then the second book is a you know closely related, but it's then how to litigate them because people may write them well, but you have to execute them in court. You have to put on evidence. You have to make your oral argument. You have to be able to counter the other authorities. And so giving counsel useful tools to be able to then go into court and actually litigate the motions. Um, because of the complex nature of rape shield laws, uh, which in our system is known as Rule 412, um, I dedicated my third book to those very specific motions because the litigation on them is horrendous. Um, even though the military has now included um, victims legal counsel or special victim counsel for the um, alleged victim, they have usually never litigated before at all. And so this is also for them to be able to know how it is that rule 412 litigation should go, how the motion should be written and how to actually litigate them. So it's a thicker book because it's kind of combining two books. Um, I have parsed out and I have another, you know, I've started writing book four in that series, which is about panel member instructions and voir dire. Those are kind of the first and last processes and, and why they link up and kind of how, how to help counsel um, in shaping their battlefield in that regard. So those how-to books exist. Um, I'm also a co-editor on a, a text um, that's produced by LexisNexis about um, 
all of the different rules and all of the different branches. It's a great resource for um, anyone who's going to be doing military justice practice, whether it's at the appellate level or at the trial court level. Um, all of the different rules in all of the different jurisdictions. Because, and gosh, the Navy really likes to change the rules every year, so they make they make my editing job a challenge. Um, but I'm I'm excited to be able to step away more from those how tos to um, give voice to these amazing American heroes who I've just had the privilege and honor of being able to represent. That's amazing. We got a, a question here that I think is I would think is probably from a lawyer, but it says. Matthew M. He goes, can you restate and repeat your argument for validating a victim's experience while defending the accused? That's a great question. I think what he means is how, how you, this is sort of that murky black, not black and white issue for how do you validate what happened to the victim, but you're representing the accused? How do you do sure. that? Absolutely. So I think, you know, I'm always an example person and a, to help concretize ideas. So the case where I had um, was defending the 04 and the judge almost wouldn't let me ask that question about, you know, sort of this misidea about alcohol. Um, it's a fairly common practice for um, prosecutors to encourage or um, permit alleged victims to sit in on closing arguments. Um, I think that they tend to think strategically that maybe it'll make it harder for me or someone like me to argue against the righteousness of their claim. If that person is sitting there and I'm aware that they're there, um, I can say it has never affected me whatsoever. In fact, it gives me a voice um, to be able to, and, and there's this respect, there's this absolute respect that I um, commended to these people because I, again, understand what it takes to come forward, what it takes to go through this process. But I remember vividly in that case, as I'm arguing about like, look, I'm not up here saying that she doesn't 100% believe the things that she's saying. Because in so many of these cases where there's an absence of memory, we can actually see reconstructed memory, you know, and you have to really carefully talk to each person along the road that they've talked to and, and watch the metamorphosis of their story. And it's because false memories exist, right? Her story initially was, I did not, I, I don't remember anything past this point up until this point. Okay. That was the first. And then later it became, as she understood more about it. No, no, I absolutely remember pushing him off saying no, you know, doing all these things. And as I argued, as much to her as I was arguing to my jury, like I'm not up here to tell you that she couldn't pass a polygraph about what she's saying. She is fervent. This is her mm -hmm. belief that this is what happened, but that's the problem with alcohol. And you heard this expert testimony, right? Cause I was talking to her as much as I was talking to my jury. Cause I'm wrapping up, you know, all the evidence we'd put on expert testimony about blackout versus pass out and recreated memories and all of these things. And as I'm arguing to my jury and I'm looking at her in this and I'm making this, you know, again, validating her experience that this is a tragedy because she's going to walk away from this experience and believe for the rest of her life that she that a, 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 such a violation was perpetrated on her. And that is horrific. It doesn't make it accurate. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you could you, I could see on her face sort of this like lifting of a weight of like, okay, 
like she she's showing respect but also maybe relief of like maybe i really wasn't um i think it was very transformative i think it was very healing um but there is a way 100 to validate someone's experience by also saying that doesn't mean that their recall or that the state of their beliefs today is an accurate reflection of what occurred because she had you know she had been influenced by so many people who um rightly you know, or wrongly were trying to validate her right but also surrounding her with this cloud and misinformation you know because the system wants right and that was part of the argument too was like the system has put so many people and resources in place in their hearts in the right place but when you are sort of creating this entourage of people who won't explain the law or explain the difference between a person's beliefs and feelings versus what the law recognizes. And that's where we're seeing, I think, the tragedy of these cases for, for both sides. Wow. Yeah. No, this is fascinating, Jocelyn. And, and more training about this needs to exist. Your briefing needs to be at like every sapper training, because this is the kind of training that nobody gets and nobody talks about. Um, <clears throat> it's so cookie cutter about, you know, bystanders and, and this and that. And nobody takes the time to, to nuance the the particulars with, especially when it comes to drinking. But gosh, I mean, we, we could go on for hours about drinking and about alcohol and the way we glamorize alcohol and just the fallout, um, sadly, um, I feel uh, from that, which, you know, I've had my own struggles myself with alcohol. And, and I can say that it, it definitely clouds your judgment and makes you think things happen that sometimes don't happen. So um, it's just, it's very sad uh, to see this, but I'm just so thankful there's people like yourself who are on the front lines and, and doing this kind of work. And, and now you have a, a TikTok. So tell, tell, tell the audience um, where they can find you. Sure. So my website is, you know, ucmj-defender.com. Um, but I'm a little more available um, <laughs> looking through TikTok videos. Um, I, and I'm known there as the messy military lawyer. Um, all one word. I kind of, people have dubbed me MML. They've given me a little cute nickname. <laughs> Military loves their acronyms, right? But um, on that platform, I'm, I'm putting out what I call my PSAs, sort of little inside pieces of information to kind of help people as they navigate this world for um, people that they care about, uh, maintaining privacy, main, making sure that, you know, they understand um, tactics sometimes that law enforcement are using, I think, um, unfairly. And then I also tell my war stories. I tell, you know, in various parts, um, cases that I've tried, both prosecution and defense. Um, I think there's been a really interesting connection for people who, you know, kind of this rip from the headlines, you know, um, <laughs> appreciation for cases and all the people who love true crime and, and all of that. Yeah. And, and Matthew, uh, her books on motions, he asked where we can find your books, and they're on the ucmjdefender.com. Uh, and, and you'll see in my show notes, Matthew, I've got a link to her website, and I believe your books are on your website, correct? They are. Um, if, you, if you want a signed copy, they're on the site, but also they are available for distribution faster to you um, on Amazon. They're all available on Amazon. Awesome. 
Well, Jocelyn, I want to thank you so much uh, for taking the time to have this amazing conversation. I will uh, say goodbye to you backstage. Um, anything else you want to add before we close out the call? No, I just really appreciate the opportunity to have this dialogue. Um, I have more recently really been vilified on some of these social media platforms. People are actually telling me they hope that I get raped um, because of the work that I do, some really horrifying things. And so I think it just, it doesn't, um, it's not a, not an honorable, certainly uh, vantage point from my perspective, but I think it also really highlights the need for education and for people to appreciate and understand that there is a system and that um, the, the piece that I always come back to is that people do make mistakes, um, but that doesn't necessarily characterize them as bad people. And so even the people who are on the front lines defending these cases, um, we are not bad people. Uh, we have a role to play. And I just am grateful for the dialogue and not just people trying to silence the idea that there are righteous people who are in, in the defense. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jocelyn. And I want to thank all of you guys uh, tonight uh, for joining us. Uh, this was a very special broadcast. I know we went way over the hour, but I think it was time well spent. And I want to thank you all for watching. Uh, I've got another show this Sunday. I'll be talking to uh, the woman who was responsible for getting the provision in the NDAA this year uh, for pet travel. Uh, overseas, the uh, travel regulations that will now allow our pets to uh, go uh, overseas and be reimbursed for up to $4,000 in moving expenses. And I believe it's five fifty for the continental United States. So her name is Liz Hensel, and uh, I just can't wait to talk to her. So please tune in this Sunday. I will talk to you all later. Hope you enjoy the rest of your night and bye-bye now.